Welcome to Blockchain Inside. Podcast is co-produced by the International Data Engineering Science Association, the Purdue Blockchain Lab, and CastBox. Our vision is to connect everyone in the blockchain industry and explore the most up-to-date news. We hope this podcast will be educational, easy to understand, and inspirational for all our listeners. I'm Coach Colbertson. With me is Kimberly Colbertson. And today, hanging out once again, a repeat guest, Mark Boyron. Hey, Mark. Hey, thanks for having me again. Mark, I hear you've got some news. I believe you just accepted a new position, right? Yeah, I just uh, joined Fisher Broyles as a partner in the blockchain group, where we've got about uh, 20 on the team or so. So it's a, it's a strong group, and it's really exciting to be there. Awesome. So, Mark, I know that not everyone probably may have tuned into our first podcast with this. So why don't you take a second and just kind of reintroduce yourself uh, to our guests and tell us a little bit about how you got started with blockchain. Sure. So I got interested in, in uh, blockchain a couple of years ago. Purely the technology was fun and still is fun. Uh, and then after a little while, I decided, you know, if I like technology so much, why don't I put my back there? And that's what I did in early 2017. And since then, have just been focused on blockchain. And most of that has been on, in the ICO space. And so just been working with uh, clients and uh, advising them as the regulatory environment changes all the time. Yeah, it sure does. Let's kick off our conversation today by talking about tokens. Can you explain the differences between a utility token and a security token? Yeah, sure. So I think one of the big probably issues in the industry right now is is verbiage. Is people don't really know what you mean when you're talking about a utility token or a security token. You know, I view it as, as a security token as anything that is likely to be a security under the applicable laws of whatever country is going to be relevant. And a utility token is any token that's actually useful within a network. But what people have historically been doing is they've been distinguishing the two as if they're mutually exclusive. You either have a utility token or you have a security token. I think the better way to look at it is that you have a security token that may be a utility token and you have a utility token that may also be a security token. Because bottom line is, sure, it's going to be useful in the network and and I get utility perspective and, and platform perspective. You don't want it to be a security because there's issues that that causes. Um, but bottom line is maybe it is a security. And so it could be useful in your network, but it's still a security. Now, there's different types of tokens that may avoid that. So you know, take a stable coin as an example, right? So you've got, you've got I mean, Tether's the, the easiest one. So you look at that and you're like, okay, well, you're a dollar, maybe a dollar one once in a while, really not changing in value. But going through at least from a U.S. law perspective, whether that's security or not, probably don't have one. Then there's the ones that are security tokens and are not utility tokens. So those are ones that are things like equity in a company that is now tokenized. Or if you have assets, real property, art, and you tokenize those, those are probably securities that are not utilities. Bottom line is you could probably break this down in three different types of tokens. You've got a utility token that may also be a security token. You've got a security token that may also be a utility token. And then you could call it an asset or equity token. That is a whole other thing that is never going to be a utility token, just a security token. So, Mark, that's the first time that anyone has spoken of this, uh, of the, the third type of token on the podcast so far. But I want to take a step back a little bit because we've heard through the grapevine that there's more of a kind of a two token structure that's starting to emerge. Is this two token structure kind of the new path forwards for ICOs? Yeah, I think it's definitely something that's being looked at more closely. I can tell you that I'm, I'm working on several with clients uh, and I know others are as well. Um, the general idea is you've got the SEC who's obviously taken a, a hard stance against uh, you know most tokens or pretty much all of them. So with the SEC saying, 
and pretty much all tokens are securities, people are starting to think, okay, well, how can we structure this? And this is in light of, of a U.S. kind of you know, market that has pretty much dried up when it comes to funding. So the question is, how can we still get funding? Because if we just sell a security token, nobody's going to buy it. Nobody was interested in a 12-month transfer restriction. They just don't want it. So the question is, what will people be interested in? So the idea is to create two tokens. One is going to be a security and one is going to be a utility. Uh, the security token is going to be sold to uh, investors. And it's going to look like a traditional security. Now, it could be many different things. It could be a security that is just equity. It could be some kind of revenue share, profit share, or it could be um, something more creative, like some kind of distribution of utility tokens. Um, and that's where the second token comes into play. And I'm going to have a token that is clearly a utility token. So what's that going to look like? Well, maybe it's a stable coin. Maybe it's a token that is going to be used uh, strictly on the platform or it's a token that the first transfer needs to be a platform. The idea being, if you hold a token that you've, that you've received in one way or another, and you go and you purchase something on the platform, and you have to purchase something on the platform with it before transferring it anywhere else, and you purchased it for consumptive purposes, and you couldn't have been holding it with an expectation of profit. And there's tons of other creative things you can do with this two-token structure. But the general idea is entice people with the, entice investors with the security token, but get the benefits that you'll get uh, on a platform with the utility token. Um, and so that's where the kind of two-token two model comes from. Okay, so to go a little deeper into that, will tokens delivered in an airdrop be securities then? And can you explain what that is? Yeah, so I mean, an airdrop is just, I mean, the easiest way to think about it is, is essentially giving tokens away. Typically, the way it's done is, is people will be whitelisted, and, and anyone who has been whitelisted will receive uh, these tokens from the airdrop. You could also have anyone who's a Bitcoin holder uh, will receive tokens, and they literally just get dropped into a wallet without doing anything. Now, if you go back uh, you know, to last year, and you still see it a lot now, is you'd see airdrops where people would say, come join our, our Telegram channel. Come tweet about us, come share XYZ on, on Facebook, and we will give you uh, tokens um, as part of our airdrop. Now, that was clearly a security. And the reason was people were thinking, well, we're giving them away, so it doesn't count. It's in, there's no investment of money under the Howey test. Well, the answer was you weren't giving them away because the, invest, the Howey test is really looking at whether there's an investment of anything of value. Well, when somebody clicks join the Telegram channel and you have more people on your Telegram channel, they've just created value for you. And so that is, I think most people would say, pretty clearly extra security. And, and there's cases going back to, you know, 99 or so of people giving away stock for free. Um, and that was a problem. Then you start thinking, okay, well, how can we do it? Maybe we just take people's names and email addresses. That way we have the information we need to actually contact them from their job. Well, that doesn't work because you can sell email addresses for a dollar each. At least. And you say, well, what else? So the next thing that you could probably do is think about, you, you literally have a, a create a whitelist of just public addresses, wallet addresses. And so now you don't have any information about people. A public wallet address really does you no good without the private key. All you can do is give them stuff. So there's really no benefit to you. Even there, there is at least one case in the U.S. that says something along the lines of if you receive an indirect benefit, then it will count as an investment of money. And so in this case, the indirect benefit would be the fact that now the network is going to grow because people are going to be using these tokens on the platform, and that's going to create additional value for the company. So that's, that one's probably borderline. Maybe that's not a security, but, but maybe it is. Now, how do you make it not a security? And it actually is, is, is a model that I've been promoting now, is the concept of an airdrop where your token uh, in the smart contract, you build in a requirement that the token be used on the network 
immediately after you receive them. So you couldn't go send it to an exchange. You literally, as I was explaining earlier, just have to use it on the network. Now, the reason this actually makes sense in an airdrop is because the entire purpose of an airdrop, at least historically, has been to grow the usage of the network. And so if you actually give away tokens and then require that they be used on the network, A, you're requiring them to use a token in a way that's just like a good. And number two, you are actually uh, going to be growing your network value rather than just letting people sell them on an exchange. So let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about more of the, the international scope. So how about tokens that are sold outside of the U.S.? Can, can they be transferred at any time by the purchasers? Yeah, so I have to say, you're talking about regas here and it's probably one of the most complicated uh, part securities laws that people people don't appreciate how complicated it is. But what Reg S essentially does is says this is under the Sterling Act. It says if you want to go ahead and sell a security outside of the United States, we really don't care. Go for it, at least from a U.S. law perspective. But what we do care about is if you're going to have somebody sell that token back into the United States, whether whether you as the issuer control that or not, that's the key issue. And so if you look at Reg S you essentially have three categories that deal with how the tokens are allowed to come back into the United States. So you just imagine now you have an issuer who says, okay, I'm going to sell these. I, I don't care about the U.S. laws because I don't need to. But now how do I comply with U.S. laws when making sure that tokens don't come back into the U.S.? And you've got essentially three categories under Reg S. They're creatively named category one, two, and three. And you... Um, <laughs> that's, a hard, that's a hard one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a really tough one. Essentially, what they do is, is, is kind of walk along the lines of what are the closest ties to the U.S. So under Category 1, you've got the furthest ties from the U.S. It's a non-U.S. company selling to non-U.S. people. Your assets and, and equity securities aren't really closely tied to the U.S. Um, and then you go to Category 2, and you get more ties to the U.S. And then you go to Category 3, and now you're dealing with you know domestic issuers selling internationally. And when you've got a domestic selling uh, issuer selling internationally, Regas says, if you're selling an equity security, we're essentially going to treat that the same way as if you're selling an equity security under Reg D, which means for 12 months, that security cannot come back into the U.S. As in, it's the issuer's obligation to prevent it from coming back into the U.S. for a year. Um, now, that's a problem, again, as I've mentioned before, in the crypto community who's really not open to that. So then you look at the second part of Category 3, which is a debt security. And a debt security under category and under RIGAS is anything that is not an equity security, which means it could be things that are not necessarily debt, but that just don't fit within the definition of equity security, which is a laundry list under RIGAS. And so if you look at that, you say, well, maybe these utility tokens, I mean the true utility tokens, not the ones that are also securities because they have equity-like features, maybe they fit under the definition of a debt security. Well, if that's the case, now as an issuer, your only obligation is, and, and there's way more gymnastics to jump through than this, but essentially is to prevent them from coming back into the U.S. for 40 days. And there's some legend requirements and really you need to actually issue like a fake token that then converts into the real token. It's, it's complicated. But the bottom line is you really have a 40-day transistor, something that the crypto community is actually way much more open to. Um, and so, you know, bottom line is under Reg S, if you're, if you're U.S. people or a U.S. company, and, and even if you're a foreign company owned more than majority of the voting stock by U.S. people, you're going to be subject to Reg S. You'll probably fall under this category three, and you need to deal with whether you've got a debt security or an equity security. What is the risk if a security token is transferred on a centralized exchange? And can you talk to us about the difference 
between a decentralized exchange and a centralized exchange? Answer first that, that first question about the centralized exchange versus a decentralized exchange. Uh, in terms of how they work from a technical perspective, I'm not even going to venture. But the general concept, a centralized exchange has a middleman, the way we're kind of trying to get rid of them in the, in the, in the blockchain world. It still has a middleman that really generally is controlling the private keys that are on the platform, on the exchange, um, and, is, and is really acting as a middleman in, in the exchanges. A decentralized exchange really doesn't have anyone. It's, it's kind of the pure blockchain-based system. Depending on how it's built, you might have something referred to as relays that are pretty much matching sellers with buyers. But essentially, the, the entire transaction, instead of happening on like a, you know, a, a privately in terms of just on a centralized system, it's all actually, all the transfers are happening on the blockchain. Uh, so that's really the distinction. Now, uh, when you're talking about a centralized exchange, I mean, you, you, you also hear a lot about this. Folks like, like T0 and Templum working on, on trying to comply with U.S. securities laws because they're essentially acting as an exchange of a security for one for the other. The question then is, though, what about a decentralized exchange? where you really don't have anybody who is uh, exchanging one security for another. And, and the answer is it's really actually very unclear as to how the securities laws are going to apply to that. One of the most unclear questions is you've got a decentralized exchange that goes to the SEC and says, hey, I want to become a broker dealer in an alternative trading system. Is the SEC going to approve that? Um, and the answer is really nobody knows, but you do have some kind of hints as to how the SEC feels about it. So there was a, uh, an SEC commissioner, I can't remember who it was, a couple weeks ago, who mentioned the idea that if you've got a decentralized system, um, you, you may not actually have somebody to go after uh, from a securities law perspective the same way you have a centralized system. So, right. so the key question might be, maybe there's nobody to go after in a decentralized exchange. Yeah, so let's just shift the conversation in that direction. How have some crypto companies been able to dodge the SEC? I think when it comes to you know, the companies who were acting, let's say pre-Munchie, the Munchie order, cease and desist order in November, I think the answer is the SEC is taking a view of, you know, there was actually a really good argument that what people were selling was not a security. And the SEC, sure, it had the Dow report out there, but it hadn't made clear, other than through a few statements from, you know, Chairman Jay Clayton, that, that everything was security. I think after November, that was kind of the demarcation of, we've now told you that our view is that these tokens are securities. And here's an example of it with Munchie. And so you should stop this. And so I think the answer is after that, the SEC's view is anybody else is pretty much fair game now. Now, clearly what they've done is, is A, continue to go after bad actors. That's no surprising, like truly bad actors. And the second one is, and they did a really good job of this, is I think they were just trying to slow down the craze because they have no ability uh, to actually go after the, the hundreds of companies doing ICOs. What they can do, though, is take actions like they did in February, where they start subpoenaing people and it becomes very public, and suddenly the whole market chills. And now what you have is pretty much nobody who's responsible in any way selling other than to accredited investors in the U.S. Most of it's just being sold abroad. Um, and so the SEC um, has actually done a, a really good job of, of chilling the market and slowing things down without having to go after anybody who hasn't been a factor. And, you know, then you've got the, the foreign issues in terms of, of the SEC actually being able to, to you know, exercise jurisdiction and, and enforce securities laws against non-U.S. companies. 
And the answer is for, for non-U.S. companies that have non-U.S. founders and teams that are not inside the U.S., it's a, it's a very tough task that the SEC has. But when you've got founders and a team that's in the U.S., you, you might as well assume that your foreign company is in the U.S. and the SEC is going to be able to bring in enforcement action against promoters who are selling securities just as much as the, the company themselves. Do you need to register the token sale before launching an ICO? Yes. Yeah, so I think register has a very specific meaning, um, which under you know U.S. securities laws, if you're selling a security, you have to do one of two things. You either have to register the security or you need to find an exemption. So if you talk about do you need to register it as a technical matter, no, you don't need to register it as long as there's an exemption that you can rely on. And so those exemptions are things that I think we've talked about in the past, you know, whether it's Reg A plus or Reg D or Reg CF. Um, so no, you don't need to do that. You could rely on one of those. And almost every ICO now in the U.S. is relying on, on Reg D to do a, a private sale to just accredited investors. Um, but but it, you do have the option of registering it, and that's, that's essentially like what a public company does. You go, you file a, an S1 with the SEC, and suddenly your tokens can go be, be traded on, on a, any kind of exchange. Um, with the problem there being no exchange, it really has the ability of trading a token that is on the blockchain. <laughs> but if you leave that issue aside, you could technically register um, a, a and go ahead and exchange it. Mark, we're about ready to, uh, to wrap up this particular episode. Can you share a way that our listeners can connect with you and if you have any resources for our blockchain enthusiasts? Yeah, so I, you know, I can be reached at uh, Fisher Broyles. So my email address is just my full name, Mark period, Boron at FisherBroyles.com. Uh, or I'm always available on, on LinkedIn, maybe too available on LinkedIn, but it's, it's fine. <laughs> um, there is also kind of worth mentioning you know, in terms of things that, that I think some of your listeners uh, might, you know, enjoy reading, is there's actually, there's actually on, in terms of, especially the crypto community, some really good uh, kind of news outlets over there. So whether it's, it's Coindesk or, you know, other ones like that, I mean, I would go read Coindesk um, and basically get alerts on Coindesk because they've got really interesting articles in the, in the uh, blockchain space all the time. Well, Mark, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming back onto the show. Thank you for having me been fun well listeners thank you for following up with us today blockchain inside the podcast is co-produced by the international data Engineering and science association the purdue blockchain lab and castbox please subscribe to our show on castbox.fm slash blockchain lab and leave a comment there if you have any questions i'm coach colbertson with me is kimberly colbertson thanks for hanging out with us and we'll see you next time